Welcome to Tuesdays with Andrea. It's the inspiration station for everyday people guiding humanity forward. I'm your host, Andrea Rios McMillan, and every week I pursue conversations that matter with people who can relate to the common struggles we all face. You'll get to know the person behind the profession and find commonality with people of all ages, cultures, and backgrounds. Listen as friends, neighbors, and coworkers offer meaningful, personal explorations of modern life and the values we hold dear, all for the purpose of strengthening and uplifting others. All right, everyone. Thank you for tuning in to Tuesdays with Andrea podcast. This is your host, Andrea. And today we have Shannon Fuller. Shannon is an HR executive with Centene Corporation. He's also one of our very good friends. And today he's talking to us about how he's managing COVID. He's going to give us some HR tips and talk us through the ways that they're dealing with reforming policies and adjusting to COVID-19. So thank you. Thanks yes. for coming. Thank you. I'm excited to be here uh, and thrilled to talk to you about not only my personal story, but how much the world has changed. The world has changed for all of us. The world has changed for the workplace and how companies look at it. And the world has changed for the employee as well. Well, why don't we start with just a little bit of your background and then we'll get into the workplace talk. Tell us about yourself. Tell us how... Uh... Oh, gosh. When were you born? (laughs) Right. Uh, In 1997. My story is kind of unique, unique and and common. You know, single single mom, five kids, born and raised in New York. Uh, I was a preemie, uh, two pounds, 11 ounces. I came two months early. You were ready. Ready. My mom was like, what? Um, And uh, grew up very, very um, humble beginnings. Mm -hmm. Um, So, a.k.a. poor. (laughs) Uh, We was poor. Um, New York? Yes. New York. We grew up um, in Rockland County, which is like Oak Park of New of, of Chicago, right? Okay. It's just like right there on the edge of the city. Um, and uh, But Oak Park is rich. Oak uh, definitely wasn't rich where we were from. Uh, we, we, were, we, were very, we were hood rich. <laughs> we weren't rich. Um, but yeah, so, you know, my story, um, I think we were sharing earlier, you know, I started working at an early age. I started delivering newspapers when I was 11 years old. I just loved money. And I think the other thing too, Andrea, is I hated being poor. Like we had food stamps and we had government assistance in church every Sunday. That's another thing. For three part. hours in the morning oh, and we, we, three we, hours at night. Oh yeah, we just went to no church. We had, you know, it was in the morning and then we stayed for afternoon service and then, and then the we break and we come back for the evening. Yeah, and then you was, would go on Wednesdays. Yes, Wednesdays was Bible usher study. board meeting, Bible study, all that. <laughs> like, oh yeah, definitely. Um, all the way up until I was probably about 16. I think that's when my mom started loosening the reins and going, okay, you know, you don't have to go if you don't want to. But before then, oh yeah. Did absolutely. you like it at that age? No. I mean, what kid likes going to church? Um, I think when I got a little older in my 20s and I was going to church for a while, I think I enjoyed it more because I'm a little older and in college, but when I was a kid, I was like, oh, I'd rather be at home watching sports, doing anything. Anything other. And it was so long. It wasn't like, no. you know, it was like we would get to church at like eight in the morning. Black and, church, oh, it can go for, come on now. for hours. You already know. <laughs> and then the pastor's like, oh, it wraps up, and then all of a sudden you get started, started again. again. <laughs> You're like, yo. Yeah. I liked church as a, as a teenager. Did I you? loved church as a teenager. Oh, yeah. I mean, I was thinking about this recently. I kind of think my grandparents were Republican. Like, the way they lived their lives, super conservative. Like, my grandmother was so They'd conservative. They'd vote for Trump today? Oh, for, for sure. <laughs> well, no, probably wouldn't vote for Trump. But let me tell you how conservative my grandmother was. If there was a kissing scene on TV, she would turn the channel. She'd be like, no, 
You're not watching no, that. No, <laughs> like it, she didn't know how you we were would, born. <laughs> and we would giggle, like right. She has six. She got five kids or so. What you, you, what you know? Mean? But yeah, no, she would no, none of that. She was very, very buttoned up. Yeah, love my grandmother. Can, have you seen what people watch on TV nowadays? Yes, it's crazy. Yeah, um, it's crazy. What's rated PG? You know, or PG thirteen? It's basically porn. Even the music that just came out, um, this, this recent song by Cardi B, that's <gasps> very controversial. Wap. Yes, oh. and I read the article and I was like, "Come on, man!" Like, even even guys have come out and said that that was a that was a step too far, and that's that's a lot because yeah. that's all guys do rap about is money and women. So um, what do you? So are you not in favor of that song? Do you think it was pushing it? Too I much? think I. And here's why, like. Because young kids listen to that. Yeah. Like, I'm not worried about m- people in their 30s, 30s and 40s, right? right? Like, but if, if I'm... If it was if only I'm, people in 30s and 40s, that's okay. Like, fine. Here's you- why it worries me is because, and I'm sure we'll get into this, I'm so passionate about young kids, black kids especially, and they're so impressionable. You know, seeing so- social media and seeing things on TV impresses them, and so they go, well, I got to be like that, mm-hmm. you know, because they haven't lived long enough to know that you don't, right? So think back to when we were teenagers. Everything was a big deal. Like, going to the school dance, is I was nervous to ask her, yeah. or I'm worried about some exam I got to take. Like, things that we laugh about now, like, oh my gosh, that was so small compared to, like, life's problems now. But that's what being a teenager is all about, right? Everything's a big deal, right? And mm-hmm. so when I think about social media and some of the things that are out now, and I'm going, man, I, you know, I read an article that <clears throat> more teenage girls are, especially black girls are committing suicide yeah. because of social media and sitting at home looking at Instagram and seeing all these great pictures of people and comparing and then comparing that to their life and they're going man I, I, I suck mm-hmm. and it, it was a really um, eye opening article um, and it, it bothered me a lot you know um, that young girls are, are so impacted by you yeah. know Instagram and Twitter and Facebook and then when they see their role models like Cardi B mm-hmm. and Kent, what Kylie Jenner and Megan The Stallion and all these you know female Rosalia uh, I think was another one like oh man yeah that's their role models right now you know so uh, yeah but good. but anyway back to your question so uh, grew up in New York worked uh, my parents divorced and my mom relocated to Georgia when I was in high school and we moved with her her my sister who's a year older than me. And that's how I ended up down there and um, started working for Pizza Hut as a waiter. How old uh, were you? And so, 17. 17. So this is how I ended up in HR. So working for Pizza Hut, I had been working there for, I don't know, maybe. So I started working there when I was 16, 18 now is coming up. So two years. And I had gotten promoted to head waiter. And, moving uh, up. Move, I was moving up. And I had, Andrea, I had no ambition in life. I was like, I'm not going to college. Were your grades good? My grades were not good. I was average. I wasn't like flunking high school because my mom would have killed me. So yeah. I was basically like, I got to keep this woman off my back. <laughs> <laughs> I'm getting out of the right, house. <laughs> right. I got to keep this much. My mom was crazy. I'm telling you. So um, she put just enough fear in me. Where I was like, I can't flunk school, but I wasn't an A student. And so... I started working at Pizza Hut. So I'm working, and uh, HR lady came in, and she, she's like, oh, my gosh, you're so funny, and the customers love you. You should, you know, think about going into our HR internship program. And I was like, nah, nope, I'm good. And so this went on for, I don't know, probably a year, right? So now I'm out of school, graduated high school, and I'm just waiting tables, like, not enrolled in school. So now I'm 18, and she came in, HR lady. So this is a life-changing moment. She comes in, and she said, listen, we're owned by Pepsi. 
I have signed you up for our HR internship program. You're going. Pack your bags. You're going for three months. I've signed you up. You she don't didn't have, ask you. She before. didn't ask me. And that was a life-changing moment for me because, one, I was like, oh, I guess I got to go. <laughs> but I, I still did, I, go. it didn't click for me how big of a deal this was, right? So I, I packed my bags. They send me up to upstate New York, which is where Pepsi's based. Now, if you know anything about Pepsi, Pepsi owns everything. They own Quaker Oats. They own Dr. Pepper Snapple. They own Frito-Lay. And then they owned Pizza Hut, Taco Bell, and KFC. Yum Brands? Mm-hmm. So I get up there, and it was just life-changing. Got to spend all, I mean, this fancy campus and all these people. And I got what, to, 18? 18. Poor kid from New York on welfare, never seen nothing. And I get up there, and not only did I do well, I, I, I got voted like MVP of my little class. Like, I just, it was just over. Like, I came back a new person. I came back. Ready. Like, I was like, yep, let me enroll in school. Like, I enrolled in college. My mom was like, what has gotten into you? I was like, yep, I'm going to enroll in HR, and this is what I want to do. And she's like, what? And because I before then I had no ambition. So that was the beginning of my HR career. So what um, made her invest in you in that way? You know what, Andrea, to this day, and I've asked her several times. Her name is Doretta Cole. She's the senior vice president of HR for the Atlanta Braves. She's everything. Like you see her, she's been on CNN. She's just large. We're still great friends. But I asked her that. She said you did, it was just something about you. She said your energy. She said complete strangers would come in and just request you for their waiter. Like who does that in a fast, you know, fast food restaurant, you know? When I started training other waiters, they would watch me, and I was really good at training. Yeah. Right? Just good at it because I'm funny, and I can make things easy to understand, and I was really good at my job. So I combined all that together. But anyway, come back, enroll in school. The rest is history. Went on to work for Pizza Hut for 15 years, so 18 until I moved to Chicago when I was 31. Wow. And went to China they sent me to China to build KFC China. They what was that like? Crazy. It was good and bad. Good and from a cultural standpoint, it was crazy. Bad because it was far and I was young and wanted to be home. And a lot of my friends were doing what 20-somethings do, right? Yeah. And I'm a, So I didn't, again, it was a moment where I wasn't mature enough to go, this is cool and this is going to pay off for me later. I didn't realize that until much later. But yeah. Went to China, uh, then they sent me to Moscow for eight months. Um, so I mean, I'm now global. Like I'm, yeah. tw- I'm now <laughs> You're global. Right. At that I'm point. like 22 years old at this point, and I'm like traveling internationally, and I'm a big deal. You know what <laughs> I mean? The CEO is wanting to talk to me to ask me how KFC China's going, and I'm doing really well. I'm performing. So that's how I got started in HR, and then that opportunity sprung board me onto so many things. Right. Obviously, it landed me the job here with Best Buy. And then, which is know, how we met, which is how we met. Yep. Yeah. And, you know, I'm I'm sure you know the story, but I got called for that interview last minute. I applied for the job. They never called me. I accepted a job with Einstein Bagel Company. Again, fate steps in. So I'm moving to Denver already. My friends throw me a going away party and I'm like, OK, now I'm moving out of Florida to Denver. Jason calls me literally a week before I'm supposed to start this job. He's like, hey. I know, you know, it's been a long time, but we had to put this job on hold. But your resume, your training background looks very impressive to us. We need someone who can train, especially our junior leaders. Yeah. Soup you, all that stuff that I want to do, right? So he's like, hey, would you still be interested? And I was like, absolutely. I didn't even tell them about the job that I had at Einstein Bagel Company because I was nervous they were going to be like, okay, forget it. Yeah. They said, well... Okay, I want to interview you with the DM. They get me on the phone. They interview me. They're like, okay, we love you. We want you to come up here. This all happened in like a week. 
So I jump on a plane, come up to what I now know is Oak Brook, which is where they met me, and then at the Downers Grove location where the territory yeah. office is. And I get in there, and it's two districts in this big U-shape in that big conference room. And I'm like, I've never done a panel interview ever. And I was like, oh, my gosh, there's like 20 people in here. So Lissette was on that panel, um, along with Rick, who is now my, still my best friend to this day. And he flew down. He came down for the interview. And he told me, he said, after I left the interview, nobody on the district staff wanted to hire me except for Lissette and him. And he's like, why do we not want to hire Rio this Rio recognizes Rio. Right. He, they were like... <laughs> They were like, he interviewed too well. It was nothing bad. It was like, he was too perfect. He was too this. He knew every answer. And they're like, he's supposed to know every answer. Like, that's what we want. And so they ended up convincing Jason to go, Jason, if you want a good person, you need to hire him. Like, we interviewed all these people, but he's, he's it. And I got the job. Yeah. And that's how I ended up here. And then I went on to do some other things. Went to work for Walgreens, DHL. I did some consulting for Target. I actually consulted for Circuit City when they were going out of business when I, uh, right after I left Best Buy. Did you tell them, dude, you're about to go out of business? I told, <laughs> actually, I did because they wanted to keep their old sales model. And I was like, it's not working. Not working. And I compared them to Sears. I said, when I was a kid, Sears would send this big, fat catalog. Yeah. And my mom would thumb through it and she'd order stuff. But that was the 80s. I said, and Sears was still sending catalogs in 2000. Yeah. Like when Target and Walmart were like online, building their online platform, Sears was like, nope, we're good. We're going to continue to send our catalog. I'm like, really? Mm-hmm. And look at Sears now. I yeah. mean, they're all but extinct. So um, anyway, that's my story in HR, and that's how I got here. And there were pivotal moments in my life where people saw something in me or people believed in me, and a door was opened. And then I'm like, ooh. I'm going to take advantage of this. And then I just made the best of those situations. How did you grasp the weight of those leadership roles at such a young age when you didn't really see other people in those roles yet? That's a great question. I think I, so I I mentioned earlier, I was poor and I hated being poor. And that was my anti-drug. I wanted to get so far away from poverty, which wasn't a bad thing, right? I'm like, I don't want to live in the hood. I don't want to be poor or struggling. I want to be successful. And so once I got a taste of that, which was that internship, it was the beginning of everything for me because I was like, I want to feel that again and again and again. And so even though I was nervous at times, I just kept charging. I think the other thing too, Andrea, is there weren't a lot of good examples in my own family for me to follow. And they all kind of followed a similar path, like either having children out of wedlock or just you know making wrong choices. And I went, that's not working out. Yeah. <laughs> I'm going to go this way. And I, I literally, I said, I'm going to go this way. I'm going to go the school route. I'm going to go the ambitious job route because that's not working out. Yeah. I literally, I was probably about 12 or 13 years old. I had this conversation with myself. I said, I'm not, that's not what I want for my life. I don't want to be poor. I don't want to get a bunch of different women pregnant. I'm going to go this route. This may not work, but that's definitely not working. Mm-hmm. And so I just decided that was the way I was going to go. Yeah, because um, sometimes you don't know what you want, you but you do know what you don't want. Uh, that's exactly it. That's exactly it. And for me, being poor was my anti-drug. Yeah. That's why you know I never got caught up in the streets because I was always working. Mm-hmm. Like when all of my, my friends would get caught up in gang life and drug life, I was somewhere trying to find a dollar and trying to make, make it out of 15 cent. Mm-hmm. And, and what happened through just luck, divine intervention, whatever, was it kept me out of trouble. Yeah. So because I was always at work, because I was too busy shoveling somebody's driveway, because I was, you know, my mom kept us in church, all those things kept me away 
from from those years where most people get sucked into the streets or get sucked into bad things. Did you ever feel like you were missing out? As a kid, because you're not mature enough to know that that's not good for you anyway. Mm -hmm. uh, it wasn't until good things started to happen for me over here where I went, I don't need that. Yeah. Because oftentimes when you're younger, and even when I mentor young kids today, they're just looking for something to, to hold, to attach yeah. onto, like belonging, right? Mm -hmm. When you think about gang life, that's just belonging. I want to belong to something. I and just so, want to be a part of right, something. Right. And so because... I had all of these positive things going on for me over here. And you belonged I there. I belonged there. I belonged to that. So I didn't need to go do those, looking for those other things because I was already the, head, found it. the head trainer at work. You know, I was already doing other things. And then once I enrolled in school, which is a whole nother uh, story I want to tell you about, it, it just changed everything. You know, as, as a poor black kid, most poor black kids don't really aspire to go to college. They're like, look, if I could just make it out of high school and get a job, that's that's... And literally, that was my mom. She was like, look, just get out of high school. Like, I still want you, don't want you to get killed. Don't want you to get caught up in these streets. And when I got to college, I was so scared I was going to fail. All four of my siblings before me had went and dropped out. And I was the last one, right? I'm the baby. And when I realized, when I got there, you know what I realized? What? College isn't hard. College is about how determined you are uh, and how much you persevere. Sure. Well, there's some challenging courses that I had to take a remedial class for and, you know, sure there were. But as I started studying and started and then I started getting good grades and then I made the dean's list, that wasn't because I was smart. Remember, I told you in high school I was a C student at best. Yeah. It's because I was like, I'm going to do this shit. Mm -hmm. I'm not I'm, failing I'm right. this. <laughs> because guess what my fear is? I don't want to go back to where I was. And in my head, I'm going, if I fail out of college, I'm not going to make it. I'm going to be back in the projects, right? And so that just kept playing in my head. So I would study harder. My friends were like, we going out. I'm like, nope, I'm good. Oh, no, stop being a punk. Nope, I'm good. I would just keep my head down because I was so nervous. And I had nobody in my family ever, ever had graduated. And so after I got to my sophomore year and I got an associate's degree, I was like, I can actually do this. I can graduate from college. This can actually become a reality for me. Because up until that point, were you still doubting a little bit? Sure I was. I remember one time I had to take statistics, right? If you have a business degree, oh, gosh, you have to. Yeah. And and I wasn't, look, I struggle with addition and subtraction. <laughs> Let's not even get to statistics. I remember I was in first grade and my mom would be like, what is one plus one? And I was like, three. <laughs> She's like, oh my God, this guy, right? Um, but uh, when I got the statistics, I literally remember sitting in my apartment and just I just started crying. I was like, I can't do it. It's too hard. And uh, I mean, I was I just cried, and I, I was that was it was a moment where I was going to give up. Um, and and the, here's the hard part: there was nobody there to go. You could do it. There was nobody over my shoulder going, "Come on, Shannon, stuck." You know, it's going to be no one, right? I had to motivate myself in those moments to go. You've got bigger goals ahead. So how do you do it? I went to my professor the next day, and I was I was still emotional, and I said. I've tried to do this homework. I don't know how to do it, you know. And he said, this is what he told me. He said, just keep trying. I was like, what does that mean? That pissed, does like, that piss you off? Like, right, yes. Because I'm like, I need this I class am. to graduate. Like, I'm not trying. <laughs> so guess what happens, right? So I kept doing my homework. I came before class, after class. Meanwhile, I'm working now, right? Um, I'm like a district trainer for, for Pizza Hut at this point. So I'm, I'm working and I'm going to school. So, so I'm, I'm coming in early and I'm staying after, getting tutoring, right? So magical moment happens. So we get down to final. I failed my final, okay? He said to me, he said, Shannon, I'm gonna pass you. He goes, 
you come into this class every day and you try hard and you you give it your all. He goes, half these students in here, they, they cut my class. They never come in. They don't care. He goes, the way I see you try as hard, he goes, that you're the reason why I teach. It was a touching moment in my life because I was like, I'm going to take this D like a man. <laughs> and he said, uh, he goes, I can't, he goes, as teachers, we have this creed where we we dream of students like you. <laughs> Take this D like <laughs> yeah, not like that, like, like that. I mean, this D letter. Let's get it right. Yeah, but no. you know what I mean. <laughs> See I where know. your mind is at. No. <laughs> <laughs> I was thinking like, yeah, I'm going to take this D like a man. I'm not going to cry. Right. I'm not going to punk out. That's what I was I thinking. I wasn't thinking that one. <laughs> I was like, no, <laughs> let me get that straight. No, but, um, but he, he, he um, stop. Cause you're going to make me laugh. He, he okay. said, uh, he said, uh, um, you're the reason why I'm, I'm a teacher. And uh, I started crying. Like I started crying it cause I was like here, you know what I mean? Yeah. I had tried so hard. Um, and, uh, he, he passed me and gave me a B actually. Gave me a wow. B in statistics. and That you did not deserve. That I didn't. I, 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 felt, <laughs> but, I felt like I deserved a C. But, yeah. but he gave me a B and, and he, you know, he told me, he said, I see you work a full-time job. Most of these kids are college kids that, that their mom and dad support them. He, he goes, he goes, I even see you around the city. He goes, I know you work for Pizza Hut. Like he, yeah, he, 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 you're the reason why I uh, teach. Right. For him to know that much and to know how hard I tried. And he goes, and, and you haven't missed one day. You're here before class. Like when I get to the classroom, you're already here. Yeah. So anyway, went on to get my bachelor's, first person in my family to graduate, went on to get my master's. First generation, college yep. graduate. Yeah. And your master's? Mm-hmm. Went wow. on to get my MBA as well because after I got my bachelor's, I was like. Why stop now? Well, that's what I did. So I graduated my bachelor's and I was like, oh, I'm done. Right. And then I was like, I, I forgot who told me this. They're like, why the iron is hot? Just go ahead and get your graduate degree because once you really stop going to school, most people really never go back. And so I took a year off from work, saved some money. So you went and got your master's. Went on and got my MBA, best decision ever. And literally, that was right when I turned 30. And then I got laid off. And what, um, what, How old were you when you got laid off? 29. I was 29 years old. I was shocked because, again, remember, I'm Mr. Superstar at Pizza Hut, right? Yeah. Superstar at Pepsi. Why did they lay you off? Uh, the housing crisis. So 2008. It's, it's 2008. Uh, and then that's how I ended up moving here. In November 2008, I got a job at Best Buy. So, and then, you know, went on to do some things here. So, but yeah, I got my master's and then um, ended up uh, here and doing great things since. So that's my story. And then now you're at Centene. So now I'm at Centene, uh, vice president of HR of the Midwest region. Whoa. Yeah, now what I'm saying. Um, <laughs> I love it. You know, I, I, I'm lucky. Um, I, I shouldn't say lucked. I kind of lucked into HR, and it was just, like, perfect. Like, some people spend half a lifetime trying to figure out where, you know. Where they fit. How, where they fit and, and trying to find their passion. I love it. I wake up in the morning thinking about HR. I go to bed at night thinking about HR. I think about training. I think about how to help people. I don't know if you saw my post on Facebook. I said, look, if you need any help, yeah, call me. I have a gift. I'm really, really good at this. Yeah, you are. And I've been doing it since I was 17 years old. Yeah. That's a long time. Most people don't find their passion until they're th- in their 30s or 40s. Yeah. So I feel kind of blessed in that way, um, and, and I, I really um, am good at what I do, and I can help people, so I enjoy it. So what are you guys dealing with now with COVID? I know HR is probably going crazy. Oh it's gosh. like a burning house, and there's you know you don't know how to put it out, and everybody's coming to you for help. 
Yes, uh, the world has changed. Uh, you know, for example, um, I, I just started at Centene in April, and I have never met anybody on my team in person. I got hired online. I got hired virtually through Skype. They mailed me my computer, <laughs> and I've only been to the office once. And uh, but that's the that that should give you a glimpse. That's the world we're in today, which is weird, uh, especially in my line of work where I'm so used to being in front of people. It's a big part of my job. Uh, but the world has changed with coronavirus, and not only my company, but a lot of companies are rethinking about work, thinking about remote workforce, yeah. thinking about how we attract talent, how we keep talent. How do you keep a remote workforce motivated? And engaged. And engaged. Um, it's not easy because now you don't have that personal, hey, we're going to have a pizza party. Everybody come into the to the break room or, or, yeah. or we're going to go for drinks afterwards at a bar here. Or even All the water cooler talk. Yeah, none, you have none of that. Uh, and so now we're left with virtual happy hours and uh, we're having to become creative around things like that, which is fun, but it's not the same. Mm-hmm. Employers are scrambling to try to figure it out. I think it's it's like we're flying the plane and building it at the same time. Mm-hmm. So because we still have to operate and we yeah. still have to do business, but we're trying to figure out and navigate at the same time that we're doing that. How do you deal with employees? Everybody's dealing with their own crises and pandemic. How can we go back into the workplace? Yeah, great question. I think our company, and I think a lot of companies are, is we're being very understanding. For example, parenting has changed. Mm-hmm. A lot of parenting have their kids at home. How do you work? And you got the kids running in the background and the dog barking, right? And and so we've had to really have a paradigm shift on accountability and how we, we loosen the reins with schools starting back. How do we deal with that? Does um, that hurt productivity at all? Does it hurt? Bottom, I mean, I guess it's hard to, to measure at this point. Great question, Andrea. We haven't seen that much drop of productivity um, at, at work. People are working. We, we have different problems we have to deal with. But for example, a storm just came through here and a lot of people in the city lost power. And we're now dealing with that. What do we do now? They don't even have internet to get online, to go to work. They don't even have food to eat. So let's just start there. So we, we're dealing with that now. So it just seems like it's one thing after the other. What I've told my leaders is be compassionate, be empathetic, give people the benefit of the doubt, even if you don't necessarily believe that they're being truthful uh, because most people are being truthful, mm-hmm. right? You're going to have your onesies, twosies who might take advantage of a situation, but most people are being truthful. And we need to make sure we're doing everything we can to help them. What about dealing with employees' fatigue? Everybody's tired at this point. Everybody's tired. Yeah. Right? It's it, just like you said, we had the pandemic and then you have social justice issues and then now you have um, people struggling with trying to fill their fridge with food and then school with their kids and then now with the storm hitting so great question what we've done is we've partnered with care.com to offer vouchers for tutoring we've partnered with a couple of other national um, companies to um, help with upgrading people's technology at home computers mm-hmm. um, we've partnered with um, care.com is also going to help us with nannies no so, way. Yeah. Yeah. We are we are going there because we realized probably about a month ago, this isn't going anywhere. Yeah. We, coronavirus is going to be here for a minute. And I think we, we kidded ourselves. We're like, oh, we'll be done with this in two, three months. Like, I know. I tell you, I personally, I was like, oh, I'll be partying by summer. This will be this will be a wrap. And I think because of the government's response or lack thereof and all the other things, too, and just the amount of people who've died and just the enormity of it, this is going to be here. 
And yeah. so I think once my company realized that, they went, okay, we, we're we going we to really so show up. So you paying for nannies for your workers? Vouchers. So, for example, if a nanny cost, I don't know how much nannies cost. I don't have kids, but let's just say a nanny costs uh, $5 a week. I'm making that up. We might chip in 40% of that for you. So we're going to help subsidize that. Mm-hmm. So instead of paying $500 a week, you're going to pay 300 Yeah. You know. Which would be a relief. Absolutely. Still. And that's the goal is just to help give you a helping hand. My company even took it a step further, which I thought was generous. You know, we had some people that weren't performing well. Um, and typically when you get fired, just get fired. And even with those people that got fired, we still were very nice to them yeah. uh, because of the pandemic and unemployment at 13%. And all these other different things. Um, they're still human. And I'm grateful to work for a company that really cares about people. What about now? Because we're everybody's remote, or a lot of people are remote. And it, it seems like everyone's constantly working. To your point, people haven't stopped working. Maybe it offers a distraction. Maybe it helps in some way. Uh, but it seems like work doesn't stop anymore at all. Mm-hmm. You're constantly plugged in. You're working in your living room. Mm-hmm. You're working in your kitchen. Mm-hmm. Do you ever have people coming to you saying, this is too much, I can't deal? Yeah, yeah. We've, we've had some people break down. We've had some people, you mentioned earlier with fatigue, and what we've just said is, is just take a break, you know, take a minute, take a day. We've even, you know, we've even had employees who said, look, I can't, I can't go on vacation. I, mean, I wanted to travel this year, I want to do that. Uh, am I going to lose my vacation? We said, no, but take, still take vacation. Yeah. Even if you sit on your couch and eat corn chips and watch Law & Order reruns, yeah. take a break from work. Take a break. Uh, and, and really refresh yourself. Uh, and you just got to be thoughtful on how you do that versus that trip to Hawaii you had planned or, or some other thing that in your mind meant vacation. Vacation now may mean just some tranquility on your back patio uh, yeah. and not having to look at email, like you said, always plugged in. So some people are having a tough time with that, though, uh, because you had plans. You wanted to do certain things. You wanted to travel. And now all of those things are on hold because of coronavirus. So we have seen an uptick in fatigue. Um, an uptick in people needing mental services. And, you know, we're doing everything to help them with that. Let's switch gears and talk about diversity, equity, inclusion. Yes. Big one. It seems like every company is talking about DEI now. Mm-hmm. What are you dealing with with that? What do you see? Do you think that this topic is a big deal because of George Floyd murder? Because this is the time when emotions are raw and ripe? Do you feel that this is a true opportunity for change, or do you think that this is just part of the motions? Does it feel different to it you? It feels different. And when I talk to my mom, who grew up in the 60s, and my aunt and you know our parents' generation who lived through like civil rights and all of that, they are saying, we've not seen anything like this since Martin Luther King and the marches of civil rights. Like, this is very reminiscent of that. In fact, this is bigger than that. <clears throat> because of, of of technology and now the world can see it. Um, and so I do think this is different. Uh, mm-hmm. It feels different. When the George Floyd thing happened, I penned an open letter on Facebook to all my white friends. I was very emotional, very emotional. I was crying. I was upset. And a lot of my friends called me, emailed me, texted me to say, we're with you. And, and one, thank you for, for doing that. Thanks because you're our friend too, you know, and, and for you to post that, it made it very real for us because we love you. Yeah. Because and sometimes so, they didn't know. Right. And so I think this is very real. I had a friend call me last Saturday and I haven't talked to this guy in like two years. Right. And he's, he's talking and he's hemming and hawing and I'm like, okay, he, he wants me to help him with his resume. Right. I'm, I'm thinking like he wants something. Cause like, why would you just call me? And he goes, I, I, I need to, I need to ask you something. 
And I said, yeah. He said, uh, uh, I've been following you on Facebook and learning a lot about black people and the struggle and discrimination and the struggle, all just from your post. And he goes, I want to talk to you about it. He said, I was nervous. I didn't know how to, to bring it up, you know. Um, so to kind of bring that full circle back to your question, Andrew, around D&I, it's been hard. It's been hard for the workplace. I think companies didn't know what to do. This came out of the blue and it blew up. Not only nationally, I think what's crazy is like the third day after George Floyd died, like London, people were marching in London. Yeah. And then France and then Germany. And I was just and like, Brazil. I was like, yo, this is a big deal. Um, Did but, you feel happy about yes. that? I guess you yes. nobody's yeah. happy about the murder. No, here's why. Because for people of color, we have been saying forever that there's a problem, that we get picked on, that we're unfairly targeted. And, and it's very difficult to be believed when there's really no proof or it's cloudy or... Yeah. Or, it's, or that doesn't happen or, anymore. Or I just can't relate to that. You know, I'm a white person, I'm middle class, that doesn't happen to me, it's really hard for me to have. But I think seeing George Floyd die on TV, I think it pulled at the heartstrings of every decent person in this country. Um, it's very similar. And all to, over the world. Think about this. If you know the Emmett Till story, it's very reminiscent of that story of Emmett Till. You know, he, he went down south, whistled at a white woman, yeah. and they dragged him to his death. But that was also the start of the civil rights movement. Mm -hmm. If you remember his mom, they, he was from Chicago. Yeah. And his mom left his casket open. Because mm -hmm. she wanted the world to see. She wanted the world to see. So they didn't have social media. So that was the only way she could say, look at what's going on in our country. And that was the beginning of the civil rights movement. So now here we are again. They, they're calling this the new civil rights I, movement. I believe it. Because it's not going anywhere. There are people still uh, protesting in Portland. Well, look at Chicago this weekend. I don't mm -hmm. know if that was related, though. It wasn't related. That was just yeah. some fools who wanted to start some trouble. Yeah. But um, Yeah, Portland's holding strong. Right. <laughs> Portland's like, we ain't going nowhere. Um, but yeah, I think that this is real. And I think that I'm excited that white America is going, we're paying attention. You got our attention. And, and the reason why I know that's true is because I'm telling you, I've had so many people that aren't black call me and go, let's talk. Yeah. That, that would never be happening, Andrea, if this didn't happen. Do that you appreciate that? I do. And some of my black friends don't. Some of my black yeah. friends are like, so what? Let them suffer. Let them feel guilty. And I'm going, I think you have the wrong attitude. I think this is a great opportunity. If someone is seeking knowledge to go, I want to learn more about black history. I had one of my white friends said, oh, my gosh, Tulsa. I didn't even know anything about Tulsa, the, to the black stock market. What? All I know about is Martin Luther King and Black History Month. Like, mm -hmm. And so we, because people are, I mean, if you go on Amazon, every one of those racial books, White Fragility, you know, all the books that are popular about race, they're sold out for months. Yeah. If you go to Barnes and Nobles, they're sold out. People are buying books. People want to learn. And we're at a point in this country where I'm excited because I, I'm hoping it brings us closer together as a country. I'm hoping people realize that systemic racism is real and that we can change the tide. And, and do I think it'll be 100% fixed? No, but the fact that people are aware and can do their own part means a lot to me. I agree with you. What do you want to see happen next? So when I talk about systemic racism, that means it's in every part of our lives. Police brutality is what kicked this off and what's always been the catalyst. What I would like to see, people are talking about defund the police department. I think that's dumb. I would like to see training for police officers. 
It's very difficult for a white kid who grew up in Naperville, Illinois, to then go join the Chicago Police Department and, and patrol Gresham, yeah. back of the yard. You've never even seen that type of neighborhood in your life. How are you going to go then police it? So I think... But that happens. I know. That's why I'm bringing it up. So I don't believe there's this whole thing going around about defund the police department. No. Because if somebody's breaking in my house, I need to call 911. I need you to come get this fool. Right? Yeah. But I don't want you to shoot me when you get here. Yeah. Which has happened. Right? So I, I, I think that there has to be training. I think we have to be in the community. When I grew up, there were police officers who lived in our neighborhood. Like yeah. you can walk by and there was a the police car parked in the in the little side street because that's where the cop lived. And so that's one I, of the things where they say there's police officers who don't identify with the community that they patrol. And that could be one of the solutions there is to have more officers who are actually of the community. Absolutely. Even if they don't live in that specific community, but they are identified with yep. it. There was a cop that lived in my grandmother's building. He's still there now. He's retired now. But I remember being kids and we would come to my grandmother's house and his car would be parked in the parking lot. And we always knew he was there, you mm-hmm. know, and he was very much a part of the community. Went to our church. You know, we saw him all the time. So we didn't even see him as like a cop. No. You know, we just, saw him as Ray. Like, that was Ray, you know, my grandmother's neighbor who stayed there, lived there for 30 years. Him and his wife, the nicest people. But that is the type of togetherness I would like to see come out of this. The other thing I would love to see come out of this is I think our cultures are very much misunderstood. Like, they're just things that culturally black people do that, you know, I, you know, we poke fun at it all the time. You know, we eat fried chicken. We have cookouts. But that's cultural. Just like there's cultural things that white people do. And it's okay to have those cultural differences, but we're all human, and there's common things that we all want. We want our kids to be safe. We want to be able to provide for our families. We want to be able to to walk our streets without worrying about things happening. That is the same no matter what color you are, right? And so I'm hoping those common bonds pull us together and say, just because I'm black doesn't mean that I don't want my my streets to be safe or that I don't want my kids to be safe in school. And I think because of our skin color, we oftentimes are stereotyped into always a criminal or we fit the description for some crime versus, no, man, I'm a hardworking black man who wants the same things that you want. We're limited by the experiences that we have. So it's hard for me to understand black culture if I'm not black Mm -hmm. and if I'm not around black people. Mm -hmm. How do we broaden our experiences so that we're not constantly limiting ourselves to just what we know? That's a great question. I mean, you hit the nail on the head. We are a sum of our own experiences. And I'll tell you my own. When I was a kid, I used to think all white people were rich. If you had white skin, you had money. Because that was me the, too. I thought the, that too. Because that was my experience. Did you think that they were better than you? Yes. That was my. Like, they lived in better houses. Like my classmates in school wore better clothes. I wore hand me downs. And so when I was a kid, I was like, man, white people are rich. Now that's an ignorant statement, right? We, you and I both know, not all white people are rich, right? We know it now. Of course we do. And why? Because our experiences, yeah, our travels our work experiences, things we've now seen in the world, right, as we've grown. So as as you live, your thought process evolves, right? Yeah. I laugh at my teenage self, like, oh my gosh, you thought all white people were rich, that's funny. And I tell this story all the time because I want people to realize that the more you evolve your thinking, if you're open to it, then you'll change, mm-hmm. right? And so to answer your question, the way we change 
is that we have to be open. And that's why this moment is so important because now more than ever, at least in my lifetime, white people are like, okay, you got my attention. Mm-hmm. This whole George Floyd thing, I don't like it. Talk to me. <laughs> it's true. Uh, it's very true. And I'm like, oh my God, you actually want to hear? Great, let's go have a conversation, right? And everyone's talking about it at kitchen tables. A good friend of mine, he's conservative. He called me last week. He said, Shannon, he's got two boys. They're in their late teens, early 20s. And they're like as far left as you can you can bet. And he's super conservative. And he's having a hard time because they're like, Black Lives Matter, Dad. Are you going to go with us to this rally? And he's like, nope, you guys go ahead. And he called me and he said, I'm really struggling with this because they're my sons and I love them. But I'm kind of conservative. And I told him the same thing I'm telling you. As I said, James, you got to be a little bit more open-minded. I'm not saying you got to go have a Black Lives Matter banner put in your front yard. But you should be willing to listen. You should be going, oh, boys, what'd you learn? What happened? Oh, maybe I will come next time and see what you guys are into. Right? Just a little bit. Right? What is your thoughts on Black Lives Matter? I, I'm split. I'm not the biggest fan of the organization but I am for the cause that they represent. What is your critique on the organization? Because you can't just show up when a white cop shoots a black kid. A couple weeks ago, 20-something people got shot and killed in Chicago. You got to show up for that. You got to say something about that, right? Your black Lives Matter can't just matter when... It's white against When black. Laquan McDonald gets shot 16 times in the back. yes. That's horrible, and we should show up, and we should be outraged. But that can't be just then, because now, to me, it's like your credibility is in question, right? You got to be consistent in your cause. Martin Luther King didn't just show up at every fifth rally or for nonviolence. He's like, oh, there's a problem? We going down there to sit in, or we going to go, you know, every time. And so for me, I'm struggling right now because I want to get behind the Black Lives Matter group, but they haven't been consistent, especially when... It's like, you got oh, you got to show up for that, man. Not that I'm belittling lives. People get killed in Chicago every day. But a few weeks ago, I want to say it was 4th of July weekend or right after, it was like yeah. record number of killings in the city. And you didn't hear a peep out of Black Lives Matter. Nothing. And that's what I struggle with. And I go, nothing? Not a statement on your website? Not a stop the violence campaign? Nothing? But you let a black person get shot at by the cops and there's a rally. I struggle with that. Mm. You got to be more consistent. So right now, I'm for the cause, and I'm for the statement and what that cause stands for, which means stop killing us. Yeah. But what I struggle with is the inconsistency in the group. We got to get better at that. Okay. What about companies? How can companies take a more positive change in creating more diversity and equity and inclusion in their organizations. I think you have to, number one, stop making every black person the, the DNI person. When you look at executives, it's like white person, white person, white person, white person, diversity person, black, black person, <laughs> or- white person, white person, white person. <laughs> and it's like, that's the token role. Yeah. And it, it should be a person of color, by the way. <laughs> but we have more to offer than that. There I, should be more representation other than that, than that specific yes, role. Yes, but I'm going to say something, and, and it's, this is kind of controversial, but I'm going to say it. I don't think any black or person of color wants to be picked just because of their color. Right. I don't. I don't. No, who would? What I do want is to say we live in Chicago, in Chicago land, which is one of the most brown, if you will, 
black populated parts of the country. And yet there's no real black executives here. How? How? Like, that's what I struggle with. And it's like, no, there's plenty of talent here. So find it, right? A great story I'll tell, Andrea, is the CEO of Ernst & Young, every year he came to his executives and he said, we need more females, we need more diversity. And they would go, yeah, okay. And next year, we need more females. And so this went on. And so finally, he said, okay, I've had enough. All of you make a lot of money. If there's not one diverse person on your executive team next year, I'm letting you go. Wow. And everybody was like, what? You know, like just this look of shock. And he took it a step further. But did he mean diverse, like ethnicity, like race? He's, he meant female, yeah, female, black, person of color, Latina, whatever. Somebody non-white. It could be Indian. But we need to diversify our executive team. We have none. And guess what? Most of their employee populations were not white. So it's like, what are we doing here? We're not even representative of, of our, our employee population or the communities we serve, right? He took it a step further, which is what I really liked, is he said, I'm going to tie it to your annual bonus as well. And all of a sudden, Andrea. <laughs> Rainbow. <laughs> it was raining black people like, oh, we got sex. We got sex. <laughs> we found some. Right. I don't know where they did. They just start coming out the woodworks. But I went to hear him speak, and he told this story. And he goes, I wasn't doing that to be mean to my leaders. I was doing it because I have the power to do it. And one of the things you have to do when you're in power is you have to use it for good for things like that. And he said, my team didn't like it. I had one person resign. It caused some dissension in my team. And he goes, but I stood on my values of what I believed in. And now he says, look at my team now. Uh, and now his team's diverse. Got a great executive program that he has there. Anyway, it's a great story of... If you really want to grow and diversify people at the executive level, you can. Are you guys doing any implicit bias training right now or unconscious bias training? We are. I'm actually, hopefully, going to be trying to bring in some speakers to do that. But this is something, uh, and I want you to pay attention to this, because whenever we have DNI training, it's always surface level. Well, you know, we really need to worry about diversity. And it's always surface level. Yeah. But it's very incremental steps. I really want to go there. Like, I want to do a TED Talks on the George Floyd thing. Grab your popcorn. We about to go there. What like, are you going to say? Uh, I don't know what I'm going to say yet. But <laughs> whatever I'm going to say, it's going to be deep. And because I feel like, again, to your earlier question, we have an opportunity. And people want to talk about it. Yes. There's a lot of people, people who want to. want to talk about this. And so... I want to start this TED Talk series at work called Courageous Conversations. I don't want to be surface level. Mm -mm. We going there today. For the next 90 minutes, strap in. If you get uncomfortable, this is not the forum for you. Yeah. But I think I'm going to sell out. You know why? Because people want to talk about it. People are nervous and they're waiting for someone like me to go, so let's talk about the Me Too movement in the workplace and how y'all feel about that. And fellas... Huh? <laughs> right. But I want to go there. What is your thoughts on the Me Too movement? I don't like it. And, Why? And, and I have to be careful because I don't want women that's, that are going to hear this podcast to think that I'm not for women or equality. I am. But I do also think the pendulum has swung so far yeah. in the other direction. So much that it's now impacting women's ability to have 
mentorships. Oh, I agree with you. People don't want to sit with their office door closed now with women. People don't want to go out for drinks anymore and talk about, nope. Yep. All of that's been out the window because the pendulum has yeah. swung Men are so afraid far. of women. Absolutely. And they shouldn't be. I've heard women go, oh, man up. And it's not that easy when if you wanted to, you could get me fired. Yeah. Most women won't. Most women have integrity. They're not going to do that. But, but if you, you want, but you could. To. Yeah. So I get it. Now, so let's fast forward and let's say a, a role comes open and you don't get it. You can say, well, you know, Shannon kind of was looking at me funny. Yeah. Now all of a sudden I'm fighting for my job. So I think that the Me Too-ers, if you will, have to hold themselves accountable and go, that's not what this movement's about. Mm. This movement is about giving us an even playing field yeah. and treating us fairly. Look, women should feel the same way I told you I feel. I don't want to get a job because of my skin color. What a, I can't tell women how to feel, but what I would But I hope, want an opportunity. What I would hope is that all things being equal, I got the same degree as him. I have the same years of experience. Why is he making $20,000 more than me? Mm-hmm. That's what I thought the Me Too movement was about, at least from the work perspective. Then there's the, the whole sexual relations part where, you know, you harass at work. That's a different, whole different ball of wax. But I'm just talking about the the at work part. But Me Too movement did have that sexual harassment component to it. Yes. And that Well, that was the basis of it. Yeah. It was like Me Too. That happened to Me Too. Like, yeah, yeah I was, I've been sexually harassed. I've been sexually assaulted, et cetera. But then it and, turned um, into... It turned into... All of a the sudden, yeah, I would agree with you. It's borderline dangerous grounds when all of a sudden you're just fighting for, I would say, like safety and respect at work right. versus I think I deserve more. I don't know. I think uh, most women want to be treated fairly. What the problem is, there's a disparity at work. There's a disparity in pay. And oftentimes with women, it's for no damn reason. It's not because the guy has more education in her or more years of experience or insert reason it's just for no damn reason that i have a problem with Mm -hmm. because now you're discriminating against females because of their gender which is the same reason why i don't want you discriminating against me because of my skin color yeah so it's the same thing as an hr executive do you see that in uh, you've worked in a lot of places i do do you have a voice in that do Do you can you say something are you risking like your position if you try to fight for someone else to get equal pay no and 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 wouldn't care if i did here's why because andrea i live by a set of morals of what would my friend Andrea think of me if she knew I saw... Shannon, you're a piece of shit. Right. Or my grandmother. <laughs> yeah. Or, you know, my mom. And that constantly, going back to my church roots that I talked about earlier, those are in me. And so I not only have an obligation from a professional perspective, mm-hmm. but I have an obligation from a personal perspective. I couldn't know, ignore that if I wanted to. And not, not and sleep good at night, I couldn't. To answer your question, no one's the boss of me, especially in my role. I mean, I have a boss technically, but I have a certain level of power to go, yeah, no, we're not doing that. And so what I do is every year I go to those leaders and I say, hey, here's a spreadsheet of 10 women that I see we need to give an equity adjustment to. $10,000 a piece. Here you go. Let's make that happen. And walk out, right? And most of my leaders appreciate that because they're either they A, are not paying attention to it, or B, they don't care, or C, both. Yeah. But it's my job to pay attention to. That's why I'm here. That's why you're paying me. I'm supposed to find those things and go, mm, we got issue here. So do HR people have a, a level of autonomy 
and separatism from the typical structure of hierarchy in an organization? Yes. HR business partners do, yes, and that's what I am. We are purposely designed to sit in the business and do those types of things, mm-hmm. right? And say, like, I will tell somebody quick, um, you out of line. Come here, let me talk to you. And I won't do it in a rude way. Um, I'll do it in a way that they'll thank me after the end of the conversation because I have a way about me that's not mean or abrasive. I'm going to put you on blast if you if you do something crazy. Um, we had a situation when I was um, at Blue Cross where this guy was in a meeting and he cracked a blonde joke, right? And everyone laughed except me. I was not happy. And I could have blasted him right there in front of everyone. I didn't. I waited for the meeting to be over with. And I said, let me, let me talk to you for a second. You want to lose your job? He's like, what, what are you talking about? I said, do you want to lose your job? He said, no. I said, uh, do you know where year this is? You know, we're, we're in this Me Too movement. We, we got all this stuff going on. And you in here cracking blonde jokes. That's what we're doing now? Oh, man, Shannon, you know what? I didn't even think about that. I was just joking around. I said, I know. You got two kids at home. So you need to reel that in, bro. Okay? Now, I'm not going, you know, this is going to be between me and you. But I'm looking out for you. I want you to be successful. Oh, I appreciate it, man. Thanks. Thank you so much. I, you know, I, whatever. Uh, I'm going to go apologize. Okay. I'm just... So you see what I did there? Yeah. I didn't make it about me. I made it about him. I made it about his kids. I made it personal. And then he said, I'm going to go apologize. Yeah. Right? So it's, it's, it's moments like that where I have an opportunity to teach and, and make the situation better. And that lady who looked at me across the room like, uh, I know you ain't about to let this blind yeah. joke slide. I know you're going to say something. Yeah, I'm going to say something. So So. what are some of those big infractions, aside from the obvious, right? Sexual harassment or uh, racial discrimination. Those are obvious. Mm -hmm. Or threatening harm. Mm -hmm. What are some of those infractions that you see people risking their jobs for that they don't necessarily consider when they're making them? This is very common in the workplace, but very rarely is something done about it or, or it's brought up as just bullying. When you get power, you tend to, uh, I shouldn't say everyone, it's not fair, but a certain number of people, when they get power over other people, they'll start yeah, when they become finding, When you move from line level to supervisor yeah, or manager. Yeah, you start doing things like, why are you doing that? Like, you don't have to treat that person that way. But some people will start to abuse their power. And so I, I do see that a lot. And then also, the higher you go up, people tend to be just nervous about you, just for no reason. Like, oh my gosh, Shannon, he's a vice president. Ugh. Yeah. And, you know, people will kind of become a little bougie and a little standoffish. And I, I, I will get on my leaders about that and go, stop that. Stop that. You used to be that person. So sometimes it takes me coaching them or, or, or kind of giving them the business a little bit to help them remind them that, you know, they're human. Everybody's human, and you don't have to step on people. I had a guy say this about a year ago. A young lady wanted to take her laptop home um, from work. Came to me. He goes, can we, can we do that? Can we allow people to take their laptop home? I said, why not? He said, uh, that's just weird to me. I don't understand why she doesn't have a computer at home. Everybody's got a computer at home. And I said, actually, no, that's not true. Not everybody has a computer at home. There's people who are, who are just maybe financially can't do that. But because this guy is like a senior vice president, makes $4 million a year, he can't relate to this young lady who's like, you know, my my kids could probably use this to do their homework on. I'm thankful for my humble beginnings because even though now I'm in a different place from a status perspective, I'll never forget where I came from. And it it helps me do my job very well because I can relate um, to those people. 
What drives you now? What fuels your passion for the work that you do? Moments in my life uh, drive me. I went to visit my mother. Uh, this was about four or five years ago. And I'm, I'm in a rental car. So I'm at the gas station. And I'm sure you can relate to this. So you're, you're putting gas back in the rental car because you got to take it back to the airport. And it's super early in the morning. And I hear someone screaming my name, Shannon, Shannon. And I'm looking around. I'm like, who's calling me at six o'clock in the morning? No one should know I'm even in town. You know, I flew in for a couple days to visit my mom. And this guy comes up to me who I didn't recognize. He says, you don't remember me, but you fired me 10 years ago. And I was like, oh, oh shit, you might be here to shoot me. This is how I was going in. He goes, that was the best thing that ever happened to me. He said, you fired me for not coming to work. Uh, you gave me chances. And then you brought me into the office and you said, I'm, I'm going to let you go today. And he goes, and I cussed you out when I left. Um, told you all this stuff. But that moment changed my life. He had his wife in the car. He said, that's my wife. We got two kids. I went back to school. And he goes, thank you. Literally, Andrew, I was at a loss for words. He goes, I learned more. I didn't realize it at the time. It wasn't until later when I had to go at another job, I realized all the things you taught me on how to dress and how to be at work. And I use all of those things now. And it's made me successful. And he goes, you firing me and giving me the kick in the ass was the best thing that ever happened to me. And I just, I saw you and I don't know why I saw you at this gas station, but it was meant for this moment to happen. And he was like a super religious guy. So he's like, oh, the Lord guided me down this street this morning to find you. And I was like, oh my gosh, here we go. Are you religious now? I mean, not, no, not a religious person. I'm more of a spiritual person, if you will. Okay. But that moment answers your question. Yeah. That's what drives me. When people tell me things like that or, or you know, when I can help someone. Um, I was helping someone recently who's unemployed with their resume and she started crying. We're at the table. This is right before COVID. And I'm there and I'm just doing my thing, Andrew. And I'm like, okay, make sure you change this here. And you need to be confident in this interview. And let me tell you what you need to say. And I'm just, you know, I'm just doing what I do. And she just started tearing up right at the table. And I was like, oh, oh what did I say? She goes, why are you doing this? You don't even know me. It was actually a friend's sister, right? I didn't even know this girl, right? And I said, because I can. And she goes, I don't understand. You don't want money or anything? Like, I've tried to pay you? And I said, no, you don't have to do anything for me. She said, you drove all the way from the city to the burbs to help somebody that you don't even know? Like, she had this look of confusion on her face. But like, what you doing? Right, because most of the time, people want something. Mm -hmm. Money, something. You owe me. I, don't, I said, because someone helped me, right? Someone believed in me when I didn't have anybody. Someone said, you're going to HR camp for Pepsi. So now I'm just returning that favor. You don't owe me anything. You know what, you, if you wanna owe me something, get the job. If you wanna owe me something, go in there and kill this interview and get the job and she got it. So, so that's what drives me. Those types of moments is what drive me. What would you say to someone who is younger now, who is starting out in this different world? It's virtual, it's remote, it's hard to get a job, and it's easy to get down, mm -hmm. or what would you say? How would you advise your younger self in this new world? Um, well, what I would say to other people first is pace yourself. Going back to my story of not believing I could pass statistics and somehow it happened, was because of my level of determination. You know, I always tell people, I'm not the smartest guy. I mean, I'm much smarter now, but more because of life experiences than book smart. But I'll outwork anybody. 
there's not a person that I'll meet that be like, I'll work. If I got to stay up 24 hours, I'm going to outwork you. It's just in me. So You're not going to outwork me. I'll outwork you. Oh, bet. Trust me. Actually, you probably you I, might. I'll outwork you. Because I need, I need, I'll work for good, but then I'll, I need breaks. If there was a contest and they said, sweep this floor, I promise you, <laughs> I'll build a broom. <laughs> but I, 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 to answer your question, it's to, um, sometimes people just need, find things that inspire you. It, that could be different things, Andrea. For for some people, it's a book. For some people, it's yoga and candles. For other people, you know, find find your thing that gets you going. For me, you know, I'm super outgoing. I'm an extrovert, so I like things like being around my friends. Last year, when I had a really rough 2019, I spent so much time with my friends, like just staying around positive people to help me through that rough point in my life. But that's my way of coping. For someone else, it may be, I need to write a journal. I need to take a trip. Maybe I need to go visit someone. So find your, your inner peace, the thing that makes you happy. And the second thing is, I say, dogged determination. Dogged. Like, nothing is going to stop me. One of the things I didn't share with you was through that journey of me growing and doing all those things with Pepsi, oh, man, I had haters. I had haters in my family. Like, oh, you ain't going to never finish school. Didn't nobody in our family ever finish. These are people in my family. Yeah. Because it's uh, hard to believe something is possible when you haven't seen it yet. It's so funny. Jay-Z has a saying, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to mess it up, but he said when he was, you know, kind of coming up through the rap game, people would be like, you're going to be a millionaire. Like, please, you know. And he would get so angry. And then he said, it dawned on him that you've never even seen it, so you can't believe it why I believe it because mm-hmm. I you know that's my goal and I, I'm messing up the saying but it was just one of the most powerful quotes I've ever read it was like it's hard for people to believe in things that they don't see yeah. and so when people are hating on you it's just their way of projecting because they go I can't do that right how can you do that for younger people who are going through this time in COVID and really trying to figure out and cope it would be to have dogged determination find your inner peace Surround yourself with people who love you uh, because we're human, right? You know, there's going to be a day you're going to cry. There's going to be a day you're just going to be mad. I was listening to your podcast about the guy who went and sat in the middle of the park, right? <laughs> there's going to be those days, right? And so it's okay, yeah. right? It's okay to not be okay for a minute. Get back on the horse and keep going and, and good things will happen for you because one thing about humans is humans love a good story. Humans love to help other humans. One of the reasons why I'm so successful is because people go, oh, my God, who is that guy? Mm-hmm. He's so energetic and fun. I want to help him. I want to be a part of his story. I want to know him. I want right. to be friends with him. Right. But more importantly, people like a good story. Yeah. Right. People go, oh, my gosh, I want to I know that guy. He's, maybe I can hire him. If mm-hmm. he's that energetic about that, man, maybe he can help me with my business. I get so many offers Uh, to do different things to make money just because I'm just an outgoing guy. And so if you're determined and dogged and you have drive, it's going to carry you further than any pigskin degree on your wall because all degrees do are open doors for you. You still have to walk through that door. You still got to interview for that job. And if you don't have those characteristics, then you can have 17 degrees and still be nowhere in life. Mm Mm-hmm. Well, I think this is uh, this is great, Shannon. I, we've covered so much here. We've talked about your growing up. We've talked about COVID nineteen, your response and, and organization's response, and then we've talked about you know your personal experience with Black Lives Matter. We've talked about 
your journey and what inspires you. You've shared so much and I appreciate you for coming on and, and, and really giving people insight into your life. And actually, this is probably the episode that I've cussed the most <laughs> with you. I bring out, you the, bring it out, I bring out the ratchet. <laughs> Obviously. These bitches. <laughs> One thing I do, I do want to plug. What? Uh, and maybe we can do a, a part two to this. I do want to plug my book that I'm writing. Yes, we didn't even talk about your book that you're writing. We didn't talk about the book, but I want to. Okay, I wanna, let's give a teaser. I really want to give quick. a teaser. So I'm writing a book, and the title of the book is Modern Dating is a Shit Show. Um, it's about my adventures in dating and the funny experiences that I had. Certainly, some of them were painful at the time, but in retrospect, they're pretty hilarious. And, and I want to share that with the world. And I want to share my learning lessons and my growth as a man, too. So hopefully this will be a series of books that I write. Um, and uh, I'm excited to share that with you. So I'd love to come back and do it again. And then give us a few topics of what you're going to dive into in this book. Um, what to look for in a partner. I'm amazed that people in their 30s and 40s don't want to ask them the question, hey, what do you look for in a partner? Uh, 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 yeah, I just kind of I don't know. Thought, I just thought it was going to happen. I really talk about basic things. I talk about actually dating. There's an art to it, right? You know, I have a top 10 list of what guys can do on a date to really impress a girl. And I also have top 10 things for women uh, to impress men. And so I kind of, I'm going to put those types of things in there. So it's going to be very funny. Uh, and I'll switch back and forth. I'll tell a story and then I'll kind of get a little serious. And then I'll tell another story to be funny and then I get a little serious. And then I'm also going to do some some book signing parties and different things like that to really get uh, people into, uh, into it. It's going to be a good time. I've just got a publisher uh, and I'm hoping we can get it edited and published by the end of the year. But if not, it'll be right. It'll squeak right over the edge into 2021, so maybe January, February. So you can throw yourself a party. Oh, that's going to happen. It's going to be a birthday <laughs> slash book party. A B and B. A B and B. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you, Shannon. Thank you for coming, God. Thanks for having me. I enjoyed it. Me too. Thank you for listening to Tuesdays with Andrea. There are hundreds of thousands of podcasts out there, and I appreciate you making the time to listen to mine. If you like this show and want to know more, check out TuesdaysWithAndrea.com or please leave a review on iTunes or drop a line in the YouTube comment section. Until next time, please stay kind in your mind, nice on the web, and stay hella hopeful in your heart.